Welcome to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. Possibly the only podcast about weird medieval guys. <laughs> I'm Olivia. I run the Weird Medieval Guys account on Twitter. And this is Aaron, a hungry little Victorian urchin <laughs> who sells matchsticks. I was standing outside the the like the beautiful the shop window. Yeah. Um You were admiring like a new pair of shoes. A new pair like in the but in this case, the the new pair of shoes is like 50,000 likes on Twitter. And I yeah. was like, I want to be famous, man. Yeah, exactly. And now we have a podcast. Welcome to the first ever episode of Weird Medieval Guys. The feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cup is seen to shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. If you're listening to this, you might be familiar with the Weird Medieval Guys Twitter account. I'm not. What's that? <laughs> For those of you who aren't, um, in April of 2022, I started a Twitter account. I had one goal to okay. share Weird Medieval Guys with the world. Um, now it's a bit more than a year later uh, at the time of recording of this. Um, and I'm, I'm Twitter famous. That was I've, the saddest I've, I've, admission uh, <laughs> of fame. You sound like... I don't know how to like explain that I'm famous. <laughs> Twitter fame is not funny. It's a burden. Twitter fame is incredibly funny uh, for exactly that This reason. is why I don't tell people about this account. <laughs> the question that I have and have always sort of had is, why'd you do it? Why'd you make, why'd you make the account? What well, did you want to do? I don't think that the urge to post can always be like rationalized it's like can you explain why like you know squirrels bury bury acorns in the ground like it's it's you know can why... you explain the mona lisa smile uh, why does the muskrat guard his musk <laughs> exactly <laughs> um it was about a year ago i was finishing my degree at university at the university of glasgow and i think i was just i was bored shitless <laughs> Um, not because I didn't have anything to do, because I had so much to do. Or because the University of Glasgow is a bad university. Because it's a bad university. And I think, like, it was kind of... I spent all of this time when, like, I couldn't justify leaving the house because I had things to do. So I was just sort of trying to put off doing things as much as possible. And I would just go through, like, you know... <laughs> I would just, like, browse the internet for ages. And I remember looking at all of these medieval manuscript websites, um, these places where libraries and museums have these scans that they upload where they scan every single page and looking through them and thinking this is absolutely insane because these are all up here i mean these are all up here on the internet like th thousands tens of thousands of manuscripts someone's gone through and scanned every single page and every single page of a lot of these manuscripts has these insane incredible hilarious drawings on them and I don't think people like know that this is something I don't know if you are like aware or were aware that this is a resource that exists I mean I kind of I don't know what I th where I thought you were getting them from I think I kind of assumed that you worked for the British Library <laughs> <laughs> I wish and I was like well surely I was like well surely that's not it, 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 okay as somebody who you know who did study history it is astonishing how little of the stuff is digitized. Certainly the secondary literature. Like, I had to climb to, like, this 
like the, the tallest tower of the of the most miserable corner of uh, the university library to find this book by this like long dead Bavarian man who was the only person who'd ever written about fucking the uh, the treatment of Catalan speakers in 18th century post-revolutionary France. And it's strange because it seems like such a mainstream problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, in all other subjects, it's like here's a fucking um here's a here's a paper about uh corn production in in Belarus from nineteen twenty two to nineteen ninety two and that's all digitized and it's all available. It's just like, oh, I can just pull this up. Whereas you have to go to these dusty fucking manuscripts. In like the that have not been opened since since the late nineties, haven't been opened since like the Blair administration, <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, so 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 it is kind of crazy that that resource exists. To yeah, me. exactly, and I think I think people feel this huge sense of distance between themselves and the medieval worlds. Like it doesn't feel real. I think to a lot of us. Well, I just think it's crazy that all those medieval people uploaded all those documents. To exactly. The British Library Put website. them on the internet for us. Thank you, medieval guys. <laughs> um, there's this amazing, amazing episode of This American Life where Ira Glass takes the famous late medievalist Michael Camille to medieval times, the restaurant chain in America where you watch people joust. I'm so disappointed that they turned out to be capital M, capital T medieval times. For a second, <laughs> I thought you were saying that he had a TARDIS. No, he didn't have a TARDIS. But so Ira Glass takes the medievalist Michael Camille to medieval times, and they're both like mic'd up the whole time, and Michael Camille is like live reacting <laughs> to like, you know, the jousting and the people coming up to him and being like, Hello, good sir, can I show you to your seat for some medieval Pepsi? <laughs> and and it's 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 an amazing episode. Ye oldie Pepsi. It's an amazing episode, but one of the things that I remember Michael Camille saying is that a lot of people are attracted to the medieval era because of some association they make between themselves and the era. So they think, oh, it was a time when people adhered to honorable values. Mm. And so for those people, it's a bit of a, oh, we need to go back thing. And Return. for other people, it's this kind of like, you know, mystical, magical time. And that's really appealing to them. Mm. Um, and what Michael Camille said is the reason he, as a medievalist, is interested in this time period is actually that there's so little sometimes that we share in, in common mm. with these people. And that makes it such an interesting sort of period of time to study. Um, and so I'm not going to give an opinion on whether we're just like medieval people or we're nothing like medieval <laughs> people. But I think that to me, it felt really interesting sharing these sort of, you know, pieces of original documents and seeing people's reactions mm. to them, seeing whether people had this response of, you know, oh, what the fuck is this? Why would someone draw this? Because, you know, you post something that's, you know, like a, a hybrid cat donkey taking a shit on a fox. Or <laughs> and, you know, and half the people in the... I don't remember that uh, chapter of Wind in the Willows. And half the people in the replies are like, what the fuck is this? And the mm -hmm. other half of the people are like, of course, yeah. This yes. is li that's literally that's me. That's me, yes. <laughs> They're like, me and who? <laughs> Who's getting shot on in this situation? I don't know. You need to. You need. To I guess that's that. up to the listener. Exactly. We leave that as an exercise to the listener. <laughs> I mean, that's so interesting, though, because that. So the the juxtaposition between the sort of the alienness of the past, even the quite recent past, 
but also the things that are so recognizable about it. And what I think your account does so, 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 so well is it makes the the distant past feel emotionally and and um conceptually different it makes it what it really does really really well is it makes you it tra it does sort of put you in a different frame of thinking about this because it, it's so fucking weird this is this is not this is this is like well past like any avant-garde art that we have these days where it's like Here's a fucking urinal in <laughs> in the tape motor. Yep. By the way, on the, I want to be on the record for this. I like the tape motor urinal. I think it's good. Um, and yeah, I I I am just. I think I think that as somebody who has sort of come at it from a, being a fan first, I think that that's what's captivating about this stuff. In addition to the fact they're often quite funny, and the captions are very funny as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think that what you say, you make a really good point uh -huh. um, with that. And I think that, you know, weirdness is kind of like the substrate upon which internet and internet culture grows. And mm. so I think that to be online is to be deeply immersed in weirdness. But I think that, like, the weirdness we create when we're on the internet feels so 21st century and so modern. Mm. And I think to sort of see something weird from 700 years ago it's it's kind of this like almost it's hard to reconcile the two reactions you have of oh yeah. this is like you know this is something i can relate to but also you know i didn't know they had this type of yeah. you know, culture and not to say that you know everything that is shown on the account is just weird for the sake of it the way things on the internet are but mm -hmm. I think that it's... And we'll get into that. We'll I'm get sure. into that later. But yeah, I think it's it's interesting kind of reconciling those two reactions and seeing how people kind of, you know, navigate those two conflicting responses. Mm. And I think that another thing that's really interesting about the account, and I think another reason why it's really compelling, is because it shows you a different side of medieval life that is... is because... The media that we consume about the Middle Ages is, by and large, miserable, um, depressing, colorless, uh, not very fun, to be honest, unless it's like an outright comedy or like a fantasy thing. Like, it's like one of the things that I, because I fucking hate Braveheart, it's one of my least favorite movies of all time. Um, Does this have anything to do with the fact that you're Scottish? It has about 50% to do with the fact that I'm Scottish and... Forty percent to do with the fact that it's Mel Gibson, and ten percent to ten percent ten percent to do with the part that I'm getting to, which is that it's so boring to look at. Yeah, it's like washed out, miserable, fucking, just like grimy men with beards sitting in a field stabbing each other. Yeah, it's just people sitting around like waiting to die. Yes. I think is like how people yes. perceive the Middle Ages. And I think it's really interesting because in movies like Braveheart, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think people are, like, interested in letting the Middle Ages tell their own story. No, I because Braveheart in particular is really about the American War for Independence. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor. Yeah, and of course all sort of interest that we have in history is going to be motivated by contemporary concerns, mm -hmm. but people in the mainstream, I would say, and pop culture is really only interested in engaging with the Middle Ages, 
in an attempt to sort of coerce out like modern narratives. I mean, yeah. even if you look at something like, you know, Monty Python, which is kind of the other end of the spectrum and that it's very goofy and very silly. Um, and, you know, it's not necessarily this dull, humorless world, but it is sort of this entirely modern world and mm-hmm. all of the humor comes from modern sensibilities. You know, actually, it's crazy you should mention Mon- Monty Python because the example that I always sort of think of when I think of the popular image of Monty Python, and I actually haven't seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail in years, so this might be a misremembering, but I, the thing that always sticks with me is the scene where it's that, it's that great scene where all the knights sort of come by these peasants and, and, and King Arthur sort of tells them that he's the king and they're like, well, I didn't vote for you. It's great. It's a great scene. But what I always think about is that it's just these, like, people in rags rummaging around in muck. Yeah, exactly. Doing nothing in particular. Exactly. They're just, like, muck foraging, basically. Exactly. <laughs> and that is the image of the Middle Ages. And it's, you know, I think that there's definitely another tendency that goes kind of the other way, which is the whole meme about, oh, medieval peasants worked less than you. Blah, 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 yeah, blah. life is better, actually. Yeah, which... Is terrible as well. Yeah. (laughs) But in terms of like the, in terms of the, the emotional and psychological world of the Middle Ages. Yeah. The weird medieval guy's Twitter account, I would say, has, and I, I am maybe exaggerating a little bit, but I, I don't think I am. I'm not intentionally doing this. I think it has done a tremendous amount of good for showing another side of of a period that's quite often sort of maligned yeah as boring i certainly oh i am a modernist this is a this is a admission of guilt okay i'm not a medieval historian <laughs> <laughs> uh, my interest in history usually starts around the 18th century uh i that's that's sort of my, that's my wheelhouse really like give me give me the um greco-turkish war of uh 1922 to 1923. Anyway. Okay. Yes. You can, um, have, you can have it. Oh, thank you. Um, but, but I think that I was, I was not interested in the Middle Ages because I had that same idea. That basically, oh, it's just, everybody's just waiting for the Renaissance to start. Yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> exactly. Everybody's sort of sitting around post-fall of Rome. And there are some interesting things happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. Which are mostly either related to, like, classical thinking or the roots of Renaissance thinking, often, I think. Like, you know. Well, I have a sort of, I have a deep obsession with, like, uh, Islamic and and Ottoman history. So I'm probably a little bit um, biased in that. Yeah, fair. But yeah, I think that was, you know, because I'm also not a medieval historian. I'm I'm sorry, we're frauds. I'm not a historian at all. (laughs) Welcome oh, it to all our comes history out. podcast. Welcome to our history podcast. It's just a woman with a Twitter account and a man who fucking hates the Middle Ages. <laughs> exactly. I'm so yeah. sorry. And we're here to tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, listen, listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, because I'm not, I'm not a medievalist, and I didn't feel comfortable, you know, sharing. I didn't feel comfortable telling people how to interpret these images, you know, the images that I post. Mm. Um, And so I think it was almost unintentional in the beginning that I would just add a really short caption and I wouldn't necessarily try to go into it too much. But I think because it became this thing of letting the images speak for themselves and almost giving, you know, the people that made them 
their own voice almost and letting the story come through purely because of the primary source. Um, I think that was also kind of part of the success. That brings us, I think, quite smoothly onto the question that we want to explore in this episode, which is, why did they do this? What, what, what was going on, basically, in the medieval period that led to people doing this very specific form of art? Because it's, it is, that's what it is. It's a form of art that just doesn't exist anymore. I think that's by far the question people ask the most often in their replies is they get in their replies and like, what, why the fuck would anyone draw this? Like, why? What was uh-huh. going, what was going on in someone's mind when they put pen to paper and drew a cat licking its own butt next to a monkey? Or, you know, what was going, what could possibly be going through someone's mind that they would draw you know, a woman in bed with a dragon and shit like that, you know. People still do that, you know. That's go to yeah. deviantart.com. What what would what could possibly be going through someone's mind that they would you know what could have been going through Rorschach's mind when he drew so many pictures of my dad hitting me? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's a weird medieval guy? Like what is as the person who invented this whole category, what is the definition that you use to sort of select for posting. Yeah, so most of what I post is from manuscripts, so Hmm. they're from books that were written in the Middle Ages um, that were handwritten by scribes, so there was no printing press, of course. So they're illustrations from the insides of medieval manuscripts. So what makes them weird, because actually if you look at illustrations from medieval manuscripts, a lot of them are actually quite normal and (laughs) don't necessarily raise any questions. You know, there's a lot where you go through and it's like, oh, a flower, how nice. But I think that what makes something weird, what makes a medieval manuscript drawing weird to someone now is either that it's a drawing of something they haven't seen before, so some kind of, you know, creature or monster um, that they're not familiar with, or some kind of scene that they're not familiar with. They don't know what's going on, and you don't know how to interpret it. Or I think it can also be something that is a familiar subject. So, you know, like a cat, a fox, a person, um, a guy, but it's drawn in a way that feels um, weird. It's not a sort of style of depiction you're used to. So I think one of the most common examples for something like that is, you know, animals that have faces that look very human. Um, you know, you get like a cat, but it's got the face of like Michael Fassbender. And it's like, <laughs> you know, why? Um, because surely they knew what cats looked like back then. Or baby Jesus. Or baby looks like Jesus. A, who looks like a middle-aged deli shop. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Why would they, why would they choose to draw them weird? Why wouldn't they just draw them normal? Uh, I think that's the, the question that a lot of people ask. I think in order to answer that question, it's maybe worth going through and looking at who was drawing these pictures in mm-hmm. medieval manuscripts. Um, because the popular conception is that it's monks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's sort of, I think that's kind of usually the layperson's interpretation of, oh, this was a monk doing this. Um, and they're kind of right. They're kind of right. To start with, if you go back to the, the, the period that sort of uh, people used to call the Dark Ages, and you, you sort of look at, at the, the text from that period, generally speaking, it's being produced by people in religious institutions. So monks, for the most part. And that kind of impacts the kind of stuff that they're writing about. 
Exactly. So it's mostly religious texts that we see, I think, if you look especially before the 11th century, mm. 12th century, what you get is this body of work that's mostly religious texts, like prayer books, um, for instance, are a big one. They fucking love making saints' lives. Yeah, they loved writing about saints. Um, and then St. Cuthbert went and he saw a fox and he cut the fox's head off, but then the fox's head grew back and he was like, that's Jesus right there. St. Cuthbert didn't do that. And then he became the patron saint of fox decapitations or something. Um, There's a lot of that. It's very yeah. tedious, heavy stuff. Yeah. And so you have illustrations in them that are often sort of depicting the events um, that are taking place. And so often these are sort of very strange events. They're decapitations. I mean, you have, for instance, um, St. Denise of Paris, who famously got decapitated and then walked around holding his own head. Um, it's like the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's, you know, at that point in time, a lot of art was, and especially manuscript art, was very heavily iconographic. Mm. And I think this is one of the biggest things people bring up and learn about when they're just kind of getting into medieval art, is that often and especially in the beginning, the point of this art was actually to be very highly stylized, mm. um, and it wasn't always to be anatomically accurate. I think that it's hard to kind of, you know, say outright why this arose, you know, and so I think that people often think like, oh, the ability to make like nice art was lost, or people, even worse actually, or people just lost the interest in making things that look nice. Right, let's fucking deal with that right now, okay? Yeah. Because I am... Which is stupid. <laughs> Which is stupid. Don't, so, don't say that. So the people who... When, when people make that argument, they're kind of missing the point about what a book is, yeah. essentially. And they're kind of missing the way in which it changed. Yeah. The... Like, whoever, whoever um, is making this stuff, whether it's monks in the earlier period or other people later down the line... It's an incredibly labor-intensive process. Yeah, exactly. The reason, and, and so books are phenomenally expensive. Absolutely. They have to be luxury items. You would own, a very wealthy person in the Middle Ages would, even if, assuming they were even literate, would only have a couple of books. Yeah. You know, they, and, and the reason why they're so ornamented is because it's a fucking luxury item. It's like a, it's like a, like a ring that's got too many diamonds on it, or like a, Trying to think of another expensive. Tell me what an expensive thing is. Um, it's like a, um, it's like one of those dogs that dies like a week after you get it from like chronic bronchitis. Um, it's just like something that's expensive for the sake of it. No, yeah, I think that's maybe a bit unfair. But I think even even in the early Middle Ages, when most of these manuscripts were made by monasteries and by mm -hmm. monks, often the monastery needed like a patron who was a wealthy benefactor to come in and bankroll like yeah. a new Bible because it was just not something that you could afford because you need like 60 goat skins yeah. and you need ink. And, and you, you need, need labor time. Yeah, well, exactly. Which, if you think about what a monastery in the Middle Ages is, it's actually a, I mean, obviously they have tithes and so on, but it is to some degree a, 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 a subsistence community. Yeah. There's a lot of work that actually goes in to being a monk. Yeah. And, and that's not even getting into the sort of the, the religious sort of rites that you have to practice, which are incredibly important to people at that point in history and specifically to those people who have that kind of cloistered experience. So anyway, the point is <clears throat> a book 
is not what we think of as a book now. It's this incredibly hard to produce, quite rare object. And so, of course, it is this sort of, if, if you're expending so much time and effort and money to produce it, you want to make it fucking nice. And what the printing press does in the, in the early modern period, uh, hundreds of years later, is that it makes books far, far, far easier to make, but it's more limited in what it can do. Yep. You can only really have... The reason why, like, um, we don't really have illustrations um, in most sort of long books anymore is because it's really fucking expensive to use more than one kind of ink yeah. on a, in a printing process. Whereas you don't, whilst there are all kinds of other constraints on book production in the middle, in the medieval period, that kind of isn't one of them. Yeah. You exactly. can't produce, you don't, you can't produce it at scale. Yeah. But you don't need to. Yeah, exactly. So shut up <laughs> yeah. about things not being nice anymore. Yeah. Please. So yeah, so these were, you know, hugely <laughs> expensive books that people put a lot of effort into making. And I think this also kind of brings us to um, another myth that I kind of like to address. Yes. Which is something that people seem to repeat often, which is that um, these drawings in the margins of medieval manuscripts or anywhere in medieval manuscripts were made because the people making the manuscripts were bored. So this is something that comes up all the time is people saying, you know, oh, these monks sure must have been bored to draw this funny little drawing in a manuscript. So this is a huge, massive misconception. I don't necessarily know where it comes from. I think part of where it comes from, well, I think first of all, let's address why that's wrong. So as um, you just said, these are insanely expensive books. They take ages to make. Forever. You know, mm -hmm. it's a hugely important undertaking, and you're not just going to kind of stop halfway through writing most of the time and start doodling in the margins. It's often. not boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. really hard, and you have to think about it quite exactly. a lot. Exactly. It might have been, you know, I think a bit boring writing Anyone sometimes. who's ever had to, like, write the minutes yeah. of a meeting exactly. at work... That's like exponentially less hard than yeah. trying to copy exactly what's said on a page onto another page. Yeah, exactly. So to an extent, you know, like this was your job is, mm. you know, writing however many hours a day there were daylight and then maybe a bit longer if you had, you know, candles, if you had the budget for that in your monastery. Um, but most of the drawings that we see were not necessarily doodles that were made by their creators. Another thing that's sort of important to address about this is often people say this about things that are like fully sort of colored in and painted. And what you saw with most of these manuscripts, the way they were made, was you would draw in space for illustrations and one guy would do the writing, or at least one guy would do the writing, and then you would have a whole different person or team of people to do the illustrations. Oh shit. So people, I think, have this idea that like, you know, I don't think it's a very well thought through idea that a lot of these full color illustrations are the product of boredom because you're not going to put down your quill, get out your paintbrushes and your like pigment powders that you need to mix and turn all by yourself into pigments um, and just sort of whack out like a little full color illustration just because you're bored. Um, it's like, say, it's like looking at a comic book. And saying, wow, somebody must have been really bored to yeah. put all this writing in here. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I think that's that's something that, um, you know, it just, it 
it didn't really happen. And I think sometimes you do get very small little marginal drawings and often you can tell that these are not intentional illustrations because they are just in, you know, black or brown ink and they look quite sort of scratched in um, and a little bit crude. But I think maybe part of the reason why um, this myth started is because there actually are examples, I would say more examples of um, people who were scribes writing down little notes or sort of little asides as they wrote um, their manuscript or as they transcribed the manuscript. Oh, yes. Um, and you have some of those with you. And I have some, I have some of those with me. Oh. Um, so you might, for instance, start the manuscript, you know, with an inscription about the scribe saying, you know, who you were um, and when you wrote it. Or you might end it by saying, you know, this thus finishes this manuscript by, you know, Gregorius Ivanus, you know, 19, not 1900s, um, you know, 1202 AD, amen, or whatever. Um, but often you would end up with people sort of putting down their little thoughts as you were writing. You'd scribble something down in the margins. So um, there's one, for example, from a manuscript um, where someone having gotten to the very end of their writing, wrote, as the harbor is welcome to the sailor, so is the last line to the scribe. Um, and so you get a lot of sort it's of quite poetic, nice little, nice little poetic lines like that. And you do actually get quite a few sort of goofy ones. Where it's <laughs> like, okay, this is a bit less serious. So we have another one at the end of a manuscript where it says, now I've written the whole thing. For Christ's sake, give me a drink, <laughs> which is great. Um, we have one um, from someone who was co clearly copying down another manuscript because they wrote, whoever translated these gospels did a very poor job <laughs> in the margins. Oh, can I do one? Yes, please. Uh, so we have, Cursed be the pesky cat that urinated all over this book during the night in Deventer, and because of it many other cats too. And beware well not to leave open books at night where cats can come. We've I mean, really stolen the show. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been doing voices. <laughs> You're missing out. Yeah, so you do you do have a tradition um, of these kind of little written asides, but most illustrations can't be said to fall into that category. Mm -hmm. um, um, so yeah, so you do have these sort of... Um, religious books that were, you know, made in the beginning. And but it's not, this is another interesting thing. I think it's worth noting is that when we say religious, it's not just like books about Jesus or books about um, the God, like, or copying the gospels or, or prayer books or whatever. You also do have some stuff that is not explicitly uh, religious. And in fact, is kind of drawing on, pre-Christian pagan culture. My favorite example um, is uh, from Ireland, because in Ireland you have this vast body of um, of essentially pagan storytelling, like this this epic literature full of like uh, gods and fucking bulls the size of houses, and people are always doing great feats of strength, and it's the, it's this tremendous like body of work that has sort of been preserved really really well but preserved really really well in the first instance by monks like the reason why we have all this stuff is because um is because christians took great care to copy the stuff down and it's not that's not to say that they weren't christian or that they were they were like 
holding on to the sort of pre-Christian mythology in a literal sense, but people were still interested in and wanted to read about like the, the these fantastical stories, even if they didn't think they were literally true. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really good point. And a lot of um a lot of medieval texts, especially um, you know, ones that aren't prayer books or gospels, are adapted directly from pre Christian sources. Mm. So a really big one that was quite popular in the early and the high Middle Ages, um, was the bestiary. And so the bestiary was often adapted from Isidore of Seville, who was a Christian, but who compiled a lot of works by um classical writers like Aristotle. And the bestiary is this like animal compendium guide, and it has entries for all these different animals that you see. Um I have a question. Yeah. Uh if somebody worked on uh transcribing and copying the the bestiary, would it be fair to then call them a beastie boy? <laughs> I think so, yeah. A little <laughs> monster, maybe. <laughs> Um, yeah, so your beastie boys are in their, um, they're called scriptoriums, where all the monks sit writing down their manuscripts. Um, and these would often, and so they have these stories in them about animals, and so you often start with, like, the lion, because that's the most important animal, and you have a little story talking about the lion, but it's not a scientific work, and it's not meant to convey, like, information for people who study animals, it's actually more like a little book of parables. So it will tell little stories about the lion. So something that, for instance, comes up a lot in bestiaries is that um, lions are born dead. And after three days, their father roars over them and they're brought back to life, the little lion cubs. Why and didn't so, David Attenborough tell me any of them? I know. Um, I know. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, these are, or you have, for instance, that, um, you know, a lion won't attack. Um, someone who bows before him. And so you have this really obvious narrative that's put into there about lions being noble and good because they're associated with Christ. And in many mm. ways, the lion is sort of Christ, you know, quite literally. And this isn't something that people necessarily believe lions actually do. Um, although there aren't really, you know, a lot of lions kicking about in Northern Europe at this time. So you didn't really have to like confront the realities of you know, <laughs> lion reproduction, but it's not the point. The point is not like that. It's supposed to be true. The point is that it tells like a very compelling story and it motivates you to be a better Christian and thus a better person. So you're supposed to align yourself with the lion. And so you have other animals as well, you know, dragons, you have, you know, for instance, that they're very evil and, you know, are often sort of compared with the devil. And because these animals are, these allegories for very human experiences of either virtue or sin and very human traits, you often get these illustrations of them that humanize them. And so you get mm. lions with very human faces, or you get these drawings that aren't necessarily anatomically accurate to what these animals looked like, because they're not supposed to be showing them as, you know, how they actually look. They're representing them as part of this Christian tradition of storytelling. And so even though you know, some of them do look kind of like broken, like Goofy. just fucked, just fucked up. <laughs> Even though some of the animals do look like they've been dropped down a flight of stairs. They look like that bad taxidermy Reddit page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the point is that they're representative of almost like an alternative Christianified version of this animal. Mm. Um, 
And so that's why you get, you know, like snakes that almost look like dogs um, and things like that is because it's part of its own separate artistic tradition. And for a lot of drawings of animals, I think that's quite a big part of it. And it's part Mm. of why there wasn't an emphasis on anatomical accuracy, something that I compare it a lot to in my mind that I think makes sense as a as a comparison is like you know animals in like comic books like Gar- when you have Garfield the cat <laughs> you you could look at Garfield the cat and say okay yeah he looks fucked up like you know surely Jim Davis knows what <laughs> Jim a- Davis has seen a cat before. surely Jim Davis has seen a cat before right so why did he make Garfield look so bad <laughs> But then, you know, obviously you have to step outside of that and say, okay, you know, Garfield is, you know, it's a, he's, you know, in many ways, he's also a human. He represents mm. a kind of, you know, little slice of humanity. He represents, you know, all of us. You look at Garfield and you go, Garfield. wow, he's just like he's me. He's just like me. I also like to yeah. put a whole chicken in my mouth yeah. and then pull out a complete skeleton. And surely, ostensibly, Jim Davis knew that cats don't do that yeah. in real life. But he chose he chose to tell a story about a cat doing that to, you know, for people to relate to and for people to So what to you're saying, from. kind of, is that this stuff, the, the reason they look fucked up and weird is because it's kind of a mix of Garfield plus Ruyard Kipling's Just So story. Yes, exact. Spot on. So Thank it's a sort you. of it's a visual um it's it's a visualization yeah. of the metaphor. So we can't sort of try to explain this really should have gone at like the beginning of this. Book. <laughs> oh, we well. can't really try to explain why every single piece of medieval art that's weird is weird, but mm-hmm. we can try to give a few examples of different sort of artistic and cultural trends that led specific pieces of art or art from specific manuscripts to feel weird to a modern viewer. And this is, I think, leads us really nicely onto a a wider point that I think it's quite important to get over about what actually it means to to process information in a world and, and, and the way that you engage with the world in a society where like writing is not the way the main way that that's done like we have this image of everybody in the middle ages is literate except for monks that's not true it's probably more accurate to say that there was levels of literacy yeah. that varied across the population but it's fair enough to say that people's in, like level of engagement with the written word was not what we have now and that, I think, is a really, really significant point that gets kind of missed a lot of the time when we when we try and think our way back to the Middle Ages. Yeah. So there's a book that I um that I quite like. I think it, it, it goes a little bit too far in some places, <laughs> but it, that I quite like, uh called uh Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um that is basically a kind of it's 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 really making an argument about television and how television is going to change politics and culture um and it was written in the i think the the late 80s it's kind of or maybe early maybe 90s um basically it makes the argument that what the expansion of mass literacy and then the expansion of the written word through the the printing press at the same at more or less the same time did was it changed the way that our brains it meant that we were thinking about things in an abstract 
way. And I don't necessarily agree with that book, because I think that what we can take from that example that, that you just gave about Garfield is that these like non-literal depictions, the, the, the prevalence of non-literal depictions of animals and people and disembodied penises or whatever, <laughs> um, it's a different way of, of getting people to think liter like laterally or in a, or in a, in, a, in an abstract way. So it's, it's a way of, it's a way of sort of wiring your brain in a certain way when you would be used to processing information visually. The great example of like how people process things in a visual way that I always like is that the reason why all the, um, pubs in, in, in the UK all have this super like visual names, like, I don't know, the, the dog and the pear tree or whatever mm. is because people would not be, when people were going to the pub and trying to find their way to it, they would not be looking on Google Maps yeah. for, a, for things as the dog and the pear tree. They'd be looking for a sign that had a dog and a pear yeah. tree on. And so what we need to do when we are sort of thinking about this kind of art is thinking about the fact that people are receiving and processing information in a very different way than what we are, than what we did in the, in the sort of era where the written word was king. And even now when we have like video and, 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 podcasts. Wow. Um. <laughs> Aren't we lucky? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you see in a lot of medieval manuscripts as well, especially as you got more into prayer books that were made for individual people. So as over the course of the Middle Ages, gradually, it became more common for people who are very wealthy to want their own medieval manuscripts um, and their own books. You also see that you have illustrations in the margins that are made to emphasize the morals of the stories that they're telling, of the prayers that are made to sort of help you connect with the text, make the text maybe more memorable, make it more beautiful, you know, maybe indicate a really interesting or important part of the text. And often these um, can also be sort of really, really funny drawings. Um, and often the people that drew them would kind of take an opportunity to add in a little bit of wit or a little bit of humor. So there are sort of, um, you know, different theories about maybe, for instance, the people who were artists, you know, who were different to the scribes, maybe they were taking an opportunity to sort of, you know, push back on the religious texts by making, you know, a little sort of silly parody or something out of them. Um, but you do have really interesting little images in some manuscripts that are almost, um, or are, puns on the words in the text. So a really good example is in a manuscript called the Rutland Psalter mm. um, that's held in the British Library. And this is a really classic one where every single page has on it some sort of, you know, really weird, like, hybrid character. You know, a guy with goat legs or a woman with, you know, fish with a fish for a head or something. And at first glance, it is one of those things where you look at it and think, wow, someone must have either been bored, smoking crack, or, you know, I don't know. Drinking too much beer. Or drinking too much beer, exactly. Which is another, by the way. Yes. <laughs> since we're busting myths as we go, I just like to put this out there into the universe. There's this idea that everybody in the Middle Ages was pissed all the time because, oh, the water was too dirty to drink, um, because you full of diseases, um, and so they all drank beer. And that is kind of true, depends on where you're talking about, but the important point that gets missed is that beer in the Middle Ages is not what we consider as beer now. It's made in the same process, but it's much, much, much weaker. Yes. So it's like 1%. 
Yes. You would not get fucked up on that. Yes. And also, people did have access to clean water back then. Yes. Uh, they had plumbing. They had rivers. They had rain. You could, you know, collect rain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so you see a lot of these, you know, goofy um, images in this manuscript. And there's this one of these two guys, and they both have, like, monster legs, um, and they're fighting. And one of them has the other guy by the ear, and it looks like he's trying to rip off his ear or something. And it's kind of a classic, you know, silly illustration. But in the text on that page, there is a psalm or a prayer that begins with, lend me your ear. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's telling you... Yeah. Fucking give it to me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's, so it's a pun. It's a very direct pun on the text. And I think, that, and again, I think that there's another important piece of context for this, which is that not only are these books super labor intensive to make, but also because there's so few of them, it's something that you're going to read over and over and over. Yeah. You need more, edi- like, entertainment value. Yeah, exactly. Like, if yeah. I'm going to read fucking uh, Hilary Mantel's masterpiece, uh, Wolf Hall. Um, I'm probably not going to read it like over and over and yeah. over again, unless I really, really, really want to. Yep. I can do other stuff. I can watch Toast of London if I want to. Like I can, I can. Uh, you can go outside. You can, I can listen go on, to a podcast. I can listen to a podcast. I can go on TikTok. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, but I could if I wanted to. And these were things that they didn't have in the Middle Ages, unfortunately. You heard this here first. One folks. of the unfortunate realities. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have podcasts. But yeah, so it's meant to... It, it People kind of asked a bit more of books back yeah, then. Exactly. Like you would, you would, you would appreciate it if you could sort of, in the midst of this unbearably dull sort of narrative about... a like we said, decapitated fox, there was, like, a little bit of fun. Exactly. And I think especially as we move sort of, you know, to the later part of the Middle Ages, we, what sort of happened was that there became this growing demand for manuscripts among rich people who just wanted them for their own private study, but also because it was this huge symbol of wealth and status. And you could, you know, impress your friends and your neighbors by having a book, or if they had a book, you could have two books. And it was, you know, like a, it was like the whole, it was like its own sort of rat race. And so it also became a symbol of wealth to have a book that was really beautifully illustrated and really beautifully decorated Mm. on the inside. Um, And so you would have these books that have, you know, illustrations of the actual scenes in them. So the biblical scenes or the prayer scenes, but then often around the edges in the margins, you would get this decorative border that would have perhaps animals or plants or patterns, but also these sort of fantastical creatures, hybrid creatures that are called, often referred to as drolleries or grotesques that are also there to interest you and to make the book really captivating and to show that it's, you know, a beautiful piece of art that was made for you. Mm. I think that it's, 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 it's good that you bring up change because one of the things that we haven't really acknowledged yet and any historians who've made it this far will be like desperately bashing their head against the wall <laughs> because we haven't talked about the fact that from about the what do you say like 11th century onwards mm. it's not monks that are making yeah, this. exactly it is these, these are dedicated workshops that are in you know towns and major cities where people whose job it is just to do this um are are, are making this stuff and there's a there's a general sort of change in what kind of 
books are being produced. So in the early Middle Ages, so yeah, up to the 11th or 12th century, you mm -hmm. have these uh, manuscripts that are basically only made by monks. And if you wanted a manuscript for yourself, gotta ask a monk for it. And over Excuse me, Mr. Monk. Please, sir. May I have a prayer book? <laughs> No. No. <laughs> I need to grow potatoes and torment these peasants who live on my land. Exactly. Um, yeah, and so then over the sort of 12th century, or by the 12th century, what we see is a transition where these independent workshops um, that are, you know, just employing people who are not clergy, whose job it is, is you know, whose job is just scribe, or whose job is illuminator, those are mm. the people that make the illustrations or illuminations in the manuscripts. Um, and all of a sudden now, actually, if you are a monastery or a church and you want uh, a manuscript, now you're actually contracting out that work to these external workshops. And a big part of this was to fulfill a demand among the upper class for books, for manuscripts, for prayer books, for right. things that were fancy and things that were beautiful, and things that you as an individual could own, provided that you had the money. And so what that also led to was a diversification, in some ways, of the types of texts that were written down and that were produced, and the types of manuscripts that we see later on in the Middle Ages. So, teacher, what kind of manuscripts do we see in the later <laughs> Middle Ages? So, um, we've gone through a few different types that were from earlier on in the Middle Ages, like bestiaries and books about saints' lives and prayer books. And prayer books in particular are still being produced. In fact, they're one of the main types of books that are produced. And by far, the most popular type of prayer book by the late Middle Ages is the Book of Hours. So this is a prayer book with prayers that you say at different times of the day, hence Book of Hours. And so you get this really beautiful artistic tradition dedicated to illustrating these books, where because they're not necessarily telling stories, you don't always have illustrations of the content per se, but you often have illustrations of biblical scenes. You might right. have illustrations of um, things that were personal to the person who... Um, commissioned the book, so you might have a little drawing of him or her uh, praying and their patron saints and little sort of personal homages, and you also often have um, a continuation of this tradition of making, you know, little decorative hybrid creatures, and so you get a lot of those throughout um, the margins and different scenes of those. Um, so you get sort of history books as well, for instance, so there's an increasing interest in, for instance, um, classical history, so you get all sorts of books um, about Julius Caesar, mm. uh, you get books that are translated writings directly from the Latin that are, um, you know, writings by, um, you know, Caligula and writings by Caesar, and so there had always been an interest in classical authors, so you had a lot of works even earlier in the Middle Ages that were based off of Aristotle, um, or works by Aristotle and um, by Greek and Latin writers. Mm -hmm. But often these were very specifically sort of medicinal or herbal or scientific texts. And so later in the Middle Ages, you see much more of an interest in the sort of human stories mm. um, and in the actual histories. So that's which is Which one. is sort of a, a in contrast to a way that I think a lot of people think about the medieval relationship with the, the classical past. In that I think a lot of people on some level understand it as this kind of 
there was there was this great loss of knowledge about the Middle Ages, and, and we could talk some other time about where that idea comes yeah. from. And there's definitely stuff that is sort of lost, and it, at least lost to Western Europe, and sort of gets preserved only really in in, in the Byzantine Empire, and, yeah, um, and and by the some of the Arab scholars. But generally speaking, there is this a relative continuity and, and I'm continuing yeah. access to these classical texts. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most <clears throat> popular tweets that I've made on the account is this picture of this woman in bed with a dragon and there's, she's a queen, she's wearing a crown and there's a king, you know, presumably her husband looking through the door. Uh, and he says, my wife! <laughs> um, and this is actually a drawing from a medieval history of Alexander the Great. And it's about one of the legends about Alexander the Great, which is that his dad was a warlock who transformed himself into a dragon to cuck Alexander the Great's <laughs> mom's husband. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the, the weirdness in some of those drawings can actually be attributed to the Greeks and the Romans, who a lot of people don't realize, but were as weird <laughs> In many ways, as the medieval, yeah, anybody uh, as medieval people, anybody who's not a, a classicist, just yeah. Zeus and the Swan. Yeah, that's all I'll say. Absolutely. Um, so we've got you know we we've got these uh, we've got history books, we've got um, sort of relit more explicitly religious books. Yeah, we still. have more literature as well. Mm. I think that's really important. There's more literature and especially vernacular literature. So yes. all of a sudden we have people like Chaucer and Boccaccio who are writing not in Latin anymore. So before this, basically every single book um, was written in Latin. Prayers were in Latin. Medicinal books were in Latin. All of education was in Latin. And even though this emphasis on Latin, you know, still continued, um, for a really long time and was still really big, even in the end of the Middle Ages, you also see more people writing their own original stories um, in their native vernacular mm. languages, like English and French and German and all the other languages you've got. How No, no, go and list all the languages. Latin, Hungarian, <laughs> Swabian, um, Flemish. Um, uh, there's, that's it. Uh, all the languages. That's you all hear the languages. That? You hear that? They didn't have that many Eastern languages. Europeans? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you don't exist. Sorry that you guys didn't exist yet. And and you also have this emerging genre, which I am endlessly interested in, of of travel looks. Yes. So the the medieval people are just fascinated by stuff that's going on outside of their immediate sort of world. And there is endless speculation because the thing again the other thing to remember about the middle ages is that yes it's true that the sort of popular idea of everybody is just a farmer and they their ancestors just lived on that one farm for a thousand years like that's a an overcorrection. there definitely was travel and trade like how the fuck did italians end up on the other <laughs> like the black sea and i don't want to know um like, like there is huge, particularly in the late Middle Ages, there's, there's huge amounts of trade happening in, in the Mediterranean region, um, contrary to some people's sort of ideas about the relationship between Europe and Africa and the Middle East. Anyway, um, but it still is true that travel in the Middle Ages was really, really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Because you got you got to think about... What are the things, not, not just like technological things that are different from now, but the general 
politics of the Middle Ages. So one of the things that we, the reason why we were able to travel is yes, we have planes and high-speed rail and the automobile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we also can count on, for the most part, stable defined borders, the rule of law, for the most part, all this stuff facilitates facilitates international travel. If you are traveling in like, let's say Eastern Europe in the sort of early to high Middle Ages, it's it's a it's a mess, right? It's it's a these questions about sovereignty and who is the boss and who you can who you need to pay to get to places and like in law enforcement. All of this stuff is kind of up in the air. We don't have a modern state yet. Yeah. And the modern state is what allows massive numbers of people to travel as freely as they as they do. Absolutely. So some of the sort of most frequent types of travel that people would do in the Middle Ages, you had pilgrimages. So mm -hmm. people would go to a shrine or a holy site, but most often this would be somewhere nearby. Um, or if you were a student, you could travel to study if there was a scholar that you wanted to study with. If you wanted to study medicine or law or theology or similar, you could go to Paris or Bologna. Um, or mercenaries. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge, uh, again, uh, we're talking about the modern state, like a lot of countries do not have standing armies at yeah. this stage. So a lot of war is carried out by mercenaries, people who end up traveling all around Europe, fighting in, you know, in 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 Italy or um, really really you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from from where they were born, or people are abducted by pirates. That's a that's a classic one. A classic one. It's, that it shows up all the time. <laughs> it shows up in a lot of saints' lives. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely something people thought about. People um, got around, but anyway. But all I this... think I think the point that I'm trying to make here. Sorry, <laughs> I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that even though travel happened, it was often in these very well sort of defined um, journeys or these mm -hmm. very well-defined routes where, you know, you it was really only feasible to go somewhere if you knew exactly where you were going, yeah. what to expect, and what you would be doing when you were there, and of course that you had the means to get there and to sustain yourself for the journey there at your destination and on the way back. So that obviously made it a lot more difficult to just say, oh, I want to go to Amsterdam on a lad's yeah. holiday. No, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you <Sadly>. can't do that. <laughs> so yeah, so but there's people are still curious about the outside world, and so you get this explosion of um, writing about. I mean, people people are particularly interested in the Holy Land because it has this sort of, especially you know after the um, the rise of Islam in in what we now call the Middle East, people it, it's harder to get there, and so um, people are endlessly sort of fascinated by what's going on there. It's like fucking guys with ears the size of a house or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So you had this... You Bear know, man. You had stories that were brought back by people who did travel, you know, to the, what we call, now call the Middle East mm -hmm. for trade. Or Africa. To Africa or to even further in Asia. But the dissemination of these people's stories was obviously, you know, very difficult because, as we've discussed, the population was not you know, of Europe in general was not hugely literate. And because there was no printing, it was hard to disseminate written accounts. And so you had these people that came back telling stories. But by the time this story got to you as, you know, a farmer in, um, you know, rural Germany or Poland, you weren't really getting like, mm -hmm. you know, the direct story as it was told. Try and imagine 
pitching to a medieval peasant what a rhinoceros is. Exactly, yeah. It's like, it's a fucking horse that's, like, shaped like a pig, and it's, like, and it's got armor. huge, it wears armor, and <laughs> yeah. it's got spikes on its head. You, yeah. You'd lose your shit. Yeah, exactly. And, like, you know, they had some, they had, you know, sort of uh, menageries, so you yeah. might have seen, like, a monkey... If you even if you lived in medieval mm-hmm. England, maybe, but like you're not getting a rhinoceros. And they had descriptions as well from the classical. They period. had descriptions, but you're not getting like a rhinoceros back to back to London without a fight, <laughs> you know. So you wouldn't. And like imagining, it's so easy now to pull up like a picture of a rhinoceros, you know, in Google rhinoceros facts, and to separate the truth. That's from one of my the fiction. favorite activities. How do you know that? <laughs> um, I live under your bed. <laughs> Whoa. Um, but you know I'm but, gonna go. <laughs> but um but you know, but nowadays so yeah, nowadays that's easy. So we see a lot of drawings, as you said, of, you know, accounts from distant lands that are accompanied by drawings of oh and I saw these guys. A guy with ears the size of, you know a guy with ears the size of his body, a guy ants with the size of camels. Ants the size of camels. That's a big one. That's a big Dragons, one. Dragons. Dragons, of course, unicorns, phoenixes, yeah. Dudes with dog heads, you know, guys with no heads who had faces on their chests, guys who had one giant foot that they hopped around on. And it sounds goofy to us now, obviously. But people believed it. Like, you you have accounts of people, tra- once sort of travel to Asia starts to open up a little bit in the sort of, in the late medieval, early modern period, you have accounts of these people who keep on going to these, like, poor Central Asian like Kazakh villages and being like, so where are the dog people at? Yeah. And just like, oh, it's over the next hill. No, yeah. yeah, just fuck off. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> yeah, and like I think that you know these stories were really compelling to people because they're really interesting. It wasn't just that people thought there was the hard evidence to back this up, but yeah. also it's so easy to imagine if you heard a story about a guy you know, with no head and a face on his chest or a, a dragon. You'd be like, damn, that's fucked up. Yeah, isn't there a story about, like, why peppercorns are black or something that has yes. to do with a dragon? Oh, my God. So the reason why peppercorns are black, according to uh, one of my favorite sources, which is a manuscript called The Wonders of the East. Yeah, so pepper is black because you have to steal it from snakes by burning the ground um, to basically get rid of them. Yeah, because isn't the idea that the snakes, like, guard the pepper tree? Yes. They're like, no pepper for you. This is my pepper. I'm a snake. <laughs> I'm very invested in this for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and there's, like, uh, so there's the way that you get gold. This is from the same manuscript. The way that you get gold is uh, there are ants that are the size of horses, and they'll dig up gold for you, but you have to steal the gold from them. And the only way you can steal it from them is by distracting them by giving them camels. <laughs> of course. The ants are just Classic. like, this is fucking crazy. Look at this. Wow. Look at this thing. It's got two humps. Anymore. I'm, an, I'm a giant ant and I think this is mad. All the boy, all, none of the boys are interested in gold anymore. We're into camels now. Yeah. Yeah, boy. Yeah. It's, so. it's a lot of that. Yeah. And like, they're interesting stories and I think they reflect this fascination that people have and have always had with the world's, you know, beyond what's known. And I think it ties maybe into sort of a wider, particularly medieval tendency to be really interested in the unknown and especially Mm. the inhuman and the not quite human. And I think that this has been tied in by a lot of scholars 
with the tendency to draw all of these funny little hybrid, you know, monster guys in manuscripts is that, you know, the medieval world was this world of order where everything was created by God for a purpose. You had people who were, you know, created in God's image Mm -hmm. and were just like God. And then you had the animal and the natural world, which was created by God to serve um, a purpose for humans. Mm. And so things that didn't quite fit into what was God's idea of creation or God's image for all of creation. So things that were, you know, hybrids that weren't quite one thing or the other that couldn't be categorized. I think that that was really, really fascinating to the medieval mind. And I think that there's a, there's a, it's not quite the same because people did to, you know, depending on the person, but to a degree did sort of believe that this was, this stuff was literally true in some cases. But I think that you you can draw a line to sort of, it feels the same or some of the same things that sort of speculative, speculative fiction does yeah. for us today. There, there is, I think, a continuity of being sort of fascinated by things that are strange or foreign or different. Yeah. You know, in many ways, it's the kind of the same thing that you're doing when you go and look at weird medieval guys. It's, yeah. It's it's fascinating to us now for kind of the same reason why it, it was fascinating to the people who, who made it. Yeah. And I think in many Not exactly ways... Not the same way, but... Absolutely. No, I think in, in and in many ways, in the same way that like we as 21st century people often look at medieval art and say, wow, that's so weird. It's not right. It must reflect ignorance Mm. or something that was, you know, wrong or worse about these people. In the Middle Ages, something that was, you know, hybrid or not quite human could reflect something that was bad, Mm. something that was not the way God wanted it and therefore evil. And this often also spilled over into the real world insofar as this was often how people who were disabled or people who didn't look like other people were categorized, um, people who, you know, had some sort of visible illness. And so it was, you know, this interest in the non-human and the not quite human and the strange was kind of a way of reinforcing Christian values in a Christian world narrative and sort of affirming one's own place as, you know, being right and what God wanted and what God intended. I didn't see that. That was really good. <laughs> I did not really see that interesting. going. Oh, you kind of bowled me over there a little bit. <laughs> and something to take it a bit further, a lot of these little, you know, figures that you get in the margins of medieval manuscripts, they're referred to as marginalia because they occupy the edges of the page rather than the center. So the center of the page was often where you would have a big religious illustration, and then you might have text around that. Um, or you might have a full page illustration. And then in the margins is where you would get the hybrid and the grotesque and the not quite human. And that was almost sort of a counterpoint to the religious image in the center. And so it was these two kind of conflicting worlds. And in some ways it's been interpreted as like a reminder of, you know, what lies within the known world and the good worlds and what lies beyond that. And it's, you know, it's been described as, a literal marginalization of mm. the inhuman and of um, the not quite human because these figures were relegated to the edges of the narrative and the edges of the physical and the ideological space. And that definitely, I think, can in part, that, that, that way of communicating um, those kinds of ideas 
is, I think, in some ways, part and parcel with a society that communicates information primarily visually. Yeah. Like, this is not the kind, that's not the kind of way that we think because we don't, we don't necessarily have to structure things and structure information in that way. It's so, it's so interesting. I, I think that to turn the question of, um, why is medieval art weird on its head? Mm-hmm. And I think ask the more interesting question. Why do we find it weird? I think that you referred to Garfield uh, <laughs> earlier. I'm going to make an even more arcane reference. We in the modern world kind of come at this like the aliens from Galaxy Quest. Have you seen Galaxy <laughs> I Quest? I haven't actually, no. I'm it's sorry. a phenomenal movie. Okay. But the entire premise of the film is that the actors from a a show that's definitely not Star Trek get abducted by this race of aliens who uh, don't have the capacity to process fiction. Oh. The, I think they're called the Thermians or whatever. Um, and so they have received the broadcasts of this definitely not Star Trek show. I mean, like, this is historical texts. These are great heroes of Earth. And so they're like, we need you to fight the... We're, our, our civilization is in peril, and we need you to save. <laughs> um, see, you want to see the movie now. It's, oh, a, I do. it's a great idea I for do. a film. It's really funny. Um, here's a recommendation for you. Go watch Galaxy Quest. But anyway, so we have come at this from the position of... The Thermians, in this case, of just like not really processing in the information in the same way as the people who made it. Yeah, exactly. And that is why it's weird. Yeah. We're kind of weird because we don't... I mean, we we ultimately kind of can't... We can imagine what it would be like to be a medieval person, but we can't ultimately think our way into it. Yes. We've been trying to do that for quite a long time <laughs> right now in this uh, recording studio. <laughs> And we're still kind of just guesstimating. Yeah. It's a good guess, but it's still to some level inaccessible. Because ultimately, you know, we've not, we can't answer the blanket question of why was this weird or why do we think it's weird? Mm. Because it was a whole era of different thought and of different sort of, you know, scholarly and cultural traditions. So we're able to pull out different examples of texts and try to explain why people made these texts and why people drew things on them the way that they did. But ultimately we can't come up with a, you know, a neat single sentence or even single podcast episode, unfortunately explanation for, I guess you're going to have to listen to the rest of the show (laughs) for how this disconnect very well done (laughs) arose in, in five, you know, in 500 or more years of, of human history, especially because if you think about it, someone in the year 1450, probably looked at, at the writings and drawings of people from the year 950 and thought, God, what the fuck were they doing? What a bunch of fucking weirdos. What a bunch of morons. Why are they going on about this fucking fox that got its head chopped off? They're not interested in Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> what a small, stupid, dark, dull world it must have been. <laughs> and then we come along 500 years later and say, actually, that's you guys. And, you know, thus the pendulum swings in the other direction. And guess what? It's going to happen to us, too. In the distant future of 2050... Tw- 2,523. There we go. Someone's going to be digging through the rubble of today's society. They're going to find an old laptop and power it on and see gigabytes of furry porn. <laughs>
is this Garfield you speak of? <laughs> they're gonna find all of my Garfield porn, <laughs> and they're gonna say, that's really weird. <laughs> and they'll be more justified <laughs> than we are in calling the medieval world weird. Well, on that utterly unspeakable mental image, I think that's just gonna about gonna do us for this first episode of the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm certainly happy to leave it there. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else that I want you to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this 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 has been a real a real pleasure to to record. And uh, yeah, if you've if you've enjoyed this episode, then. Uh, Please follow Weird Medieval Guys and uh, follow us. On Twitter, I am at Olivia underscore underscore MS. And I am uh, at Aaron, A-R-A-N, P, Tappers. Uh, in, the, in the bio, in the text. Until next time, in that case. Stay weird medieval. Stay weird and medieval. Guys. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> yeah. And let us know if you enjoyed the podcast. Um, yeah. Like and subscribe. Comment. Let us know if there's anything you'd like to see in future episodes. Review the podcast. I'm told that helps. Exactly. Thank unless you. you don't have unless you didn't like it, in which case shut the fuck up. Yeah, in which case get some fucking taste. <laughs> and listen to it again until you like it. All right. Take right. it easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm I'm